We're in Romans chapter 9. It was a good break-off point to have a week off, at least for me, as we get into kind of a new section and somewhat controversial section of, uh, of uh, Romans here, 9, 10, and 11. As we're kind of gathering and getting our places, I'll just mention that uh, there are some that view 9, 10, 11 as Israel past, present, and future. And uh, there's others that view chapters 9 through 11 as not fitting into the Romans letter, and they wonder if it was written separately and imposed in there. There's others that see it as uh, 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 9, 10, 11 as a, a topic on predestination. And there's others that call it a parenthetical. I was in that camp for many years. It was Chuck Kirchhoff that uh, used to be here and a teacher, and he'd been a pastor and, and a professor. And uh, he is the one that uh, convinced me that that probably wasn't accurate. And then we have our theme that we established in the beginning of the good news, the gospel, as the uh, overriding theme of um, Romans. And other than the ones that say that the letter doesn't fit, those are probably all true. It is Israel past, present, present. It is about predestination. And it definitely is about the gospel. And uh, I do not believe it's a parenthetical. There are those that still do, but that might be there. But I think when we see Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, the overriding umbrella that would fit with the issue of the gospel is the sovereignty of God. And I think that's what Paul is trying to establish here, is the sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for your uh, love for us. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we had a week um, of hearing your word preached uh, nightly. And we, we pray for the Fraser team as they're in northern Wisconsin today, and pray that you bless them. And we thank you so much for his uh, uh, challenges to us. And Father, I just pray that uh, we would find ourselves uh, very much engrossed in these uh, chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And Lord, that uh, you would show us what you have for us in them. And Father, I just thank you again for this church and for its pastor and your leadership here is, uh, I can remember when the church was started and uh, everybody said it would never survive. And here we are 50, uh, 51 years later. And it's only because of you and because of your sovereignty over the issues in Pine Island and the fact that you wanted a church planted here. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get started in uh, Romans 9, I think the springboard... Uh, for this is still in Romans 8, verse 29, and we spent some time on that, where it says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, and for those who are called according to his purpose. And um, that kind of took off on the issue of foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification and glorification, all acts of God. And... um, uh, the key there, he said, is for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. 
we're going to see that expanded on here. But uh, I think that's at least for me is kind of the, the verse that I fall back on that springboards us into chapter 9. And um, I, I believe Paul here, uh, he's proving uh, this point, the point of the gospel, in tying in the Old Testament message and the message that's given by the prophets. Because we're going to see, and if you read Romans 9, Romans 9 has always been a confusing thing to me. And uh, I, I tended to uh, sometimes just uh, go from chapter 8 to chapter 10 because it was more comfortable. Uh, but <clears throat> Romans 9 is uh, definitely uh, a, a very key portion here to lead into chapter 10. And Paul is tying in here the Old Testament examples of how God worked. And I think that's a good, good thing for us to look at. Paul was not liked by the Jewish people. I think you can uh, understand that. Uh, he was tormented by the Judaizers that followed as he would plant church. They'd follow behind and, and uh, they would uh, uh, criticize Paul and lash out at him and his teaching. So he, wasn't, he was kind of viewed as a traitor to Judaism. And, and I can understand that. He was, he was their armor bearer, their, their banner bearer, if you will, for Judaism, and uh, as a Pharisee, as a Pharisee of the Pharisee. So he was a, he was a leader in, in uh, the, the Jewish uh, uh, position there of Judaism. And here he's writing to predominantly Gentiles in this church. And he's showing how God used the Jews through history to bring us to the point of the church. Now, we never want to fall into the trap that some have that the church is the modern-day uh, Jew, or Israel, modern-day Israel. They are, they are separate. But we see here Paul leading from the Old Testament and the Old Testament scriptures to understand how God is working in and through the church, and even beyond that, into the kingdom. So let's take a look at the, the, the first verses now. And keeping keep your mind as we go through here, the sovereignty of God. See if you see it, uh, as I do. And I have no problem with anybody disagreeing with me. That's just, that's just fine. But uh, let's take a look at what we have here. In these first five verses of, of uh, uh, chapter 9, now just remember, he just got done going through a difficult portion concerning the purpose of God that he sees in, in verse 28. Then he went through the, the stepping stones, which I've, I've challenged you to read backwards to see how they're predicated. One's predicated on the other, of foreknowledge, predestination, calling, uh, justification, and glorification. And he went through that process. And he, he said in verse 37 that we are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. And he was sure that nothing in this world could separate us from the love of God. We are in God's hands. Why? Because God is sovereign. He is sovereign over his creation. And now he says in verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying, he said. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For whom? For Israel. To the point where he said, I wish that I could accurse myself and cut off from Christ for my, the sake of my brothers, the kinsmen, according to the flesh. And that according to the flesh becomes a, an important thing because we're going to see that follow through here as he, as he proves that point. But he, 
do any of us, uh, do we love so, somebody so much that we would say, you know what, I would gladly surrender my salvation and go to hell if they could get saved. That's what he's saying here about his kinsmen in Israel. So that's, that's some statement that I honestly couldn't find myself in. And then he goes on here, and uh, I, think, I think we're going to see a lot of questions because he's anticip- anticipating disagreement to what he's saying. So he's, before he gets the questions, he's ask, actually asking the questions and then answering them. But he goes into eight things here. He lists eight privileges that Israel has. And much like we saw in chapter 5, remember chapter 5, the first 11 verses, we saw the blessings that we had in Christ and that whole list of blessings there is a result of our new status of being justified in Jesus Christ. And that new status, uh, Paul was saying in, in chapter 5, gives us these privileges. Well, here we're seeing the same thing that he's talking about the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And the first one he says there in verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption. The adoption as sons, I think, would be the more complete thing to say there. And we're not going to go into depth in any of these, but the the, the whole thing is this. Uh, They were adopted as a nation. Did that mean that all Jews were going to be saved? No. If you go through the Old Testament, there's always a remnant. There was always a remnant. And we're going to even see later in the lesson today, looking futuristically, there's going to be a remnant. They're going to be as the sands of the sea, but there'll be a remnant. God has always saved a remnant. remnant. But I think in Paul's day, the Jews viewed themselves as God's people, and they were the ones who were set aside for salvation, as we would say. They were the ones that were set aside as a nation. And they had the sacrificial system and all these things that they went by. The problem that they didn't see is they had they had completely uh, they had completely destroyed what God originally had for them and how they viewed the law and how they viewed their their place as far as uh, uh, as uh, acting out, if you will, with the with the uh, sacrificial system and so on. The second thing he says the glory. What what is he talking about when he says the glory? The Israelites had the glory. What do you think that was? Go back to the Old Testament, the glory. Pardon? The law. The law? Okay. Anybody else? Remember the Shekinah glory? They had the Shekinah glory. It was in the tent of meeting, it was in the tabernacle, and also later in the temple. And the Shekinah glory was given to Israel to show them that they had God in their presence. Now, we know at times he, he left, didn't he? he? He was taken up and he left because of disobedience. But here we see the glory. They had the Shekinah glory. They had the proof, the manifestation of God that was visible to them on a daily basis, Exodus chapter uh, 40. And uh, then he goes on the covenants. We've got Abraham, we've got uh, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. Uh, they were commitments to Israel from God. And we know some are conditional, some. We know the big one with Abraham for us was unconditional. That's why we can be grafted in as a, uh, as a vine uh, to the tree, if you will. Uh, we're grafted in to the plan that God had for them. 
And we're in that plan now, the time of the Gentiles, which we live in. And then they had the law. They had a legal code. It goes on the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. The law was a legal code that we abide in our teaching. It's important to us. Uh, Deuteronomy is important to us. All the Old Testament is important to us. But it was given to Israel. The temple service, the worship, the promises, uh, the promises that we have, uh, again, in the Abrahamic covenant, but the promises throughout the Old Testament, including the Messianic reign, that uh, they were, it says there, to them uh, belong the prom- just the promises. And then it goes on the fathers, the patriarchs. Uh, Israel's history, Israel's roots, if you, if you will, that were in the patriarchs. And lastly, in verse 5b, it says, And uh, according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. <clears throat> so we see here, the last one is the Messiah. And the greatest gift that was ever given to any nation, or could be given to any nation, is the Messiah. And the fact that he came through Israel. He was given to Israel. So Paul is, 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 is starting this whole thing out, identifying what he has in Israel. Now, again, he's, remember, he's writing to a church, a predominantly Gentile church. You say, well, that sounds funny. Why would he? Because of the connection that he's going to make. And the understanding of how God has worked through human history to bring a people to himself. So in verses 6 through 13, and we're not going to read every one, but you can follow along. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, I I think that's kind of the setting point for the whole next three chapters, is God's word has not failed. That's an important thing for us to hang on to. And that's one of the important lessons that we can learn over the next three weeks as we go through these three chapters God's world, word hasn't failed. It is, it, is, it is being addressed. It is being successful in the, the whole uh, process of time of mankind. But he goes and he has a, a, a little verse that comes next there. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That's in 6b. What's he talking about? Not all that, that are, are uh, from Israel. Let me make sure I read that right. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, go ahead, Doug. Okay. Yeah. Now, there's one. Paul uses a statement in uh, Galatians 6. If you want to turn there, fine, but I'm going I'm to just read it. That always puzzled me. Matter of fact, at times it irritated me. I thought, what in the world is he saying here? But he's talking here in in 6.16, he says, and as for all who walk by this rule, I think the the rule there is the word of God he's talking about, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now he's, again, in Galatians, he he is addressing this letter to the churches of Galatia. We went through that, I don't know how long ago I went through Galatians. Um, But all the churches of Galatia are being addressed here. And he calls this the Israel of God. And it's really the same thing that he said in chapter 329 in Galatians, where he addresses them as the offspring of Abraham. 
he's again addressing Gentiles for them to understand where they came from. They were not part of Israel. They've been grafted in. By the mercy of God, they've been grafted in. But he said the Israel of God. Now, there are some commentators that think what this is talking about here is it's talking about Israel, and then the second Israel is the Israel of God. I, I don't see that at all. But Doug was, Doug was on point there. I think what he's talking about here, and we're going to see this proven out over the next examples that he gives from the Old Testament, he's talking about a physical Israel, which all Jews would belong to, and then he's talking about a spiritual Israel, which a remnant would belong to. So physical Israel and uh, spiritual Israel. The broader Israel, of course, would be descended from whom? Abraham. And he's going to use that as an example first here as he goes on and he says, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So now we got two different terms being used there again. Now, who did Abraham father? Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. So they become the point here that he is going to deal with as the children and the offspring. The children being, again, I believe the broader term that he uses for offspring of Ishmael and Isaac, and offspring here, and he says it next, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So he's using these examples that, okay, not all Israel is spiritual Israel. Just like not all descendants of Abraham are blessed by God, that blessing was given to Isaac. Now, Ishmael was given promises. He is 13 years older. But then he's going to go on further in this whole example, and he's talking about the flesh and promise. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. So they're the... The offspring keeps showing up there as the term for the narrower, uh, what's the word I want? The narrower condition or, or speck that he has, not the broader. And it's because promise is different from flesh. Now we know that what happened there with uh, uh, Ishmael and Isaac, where Sarah and uh, convinced her husband Abraham, because he'd been promised a, a son, an off, offspring. And she was getting old, he was getting old, and she went to him and said, here, take my handmaiden, which was a common thing, because anybody that the handmaiden bore would be a child of Abraham and Sarah. And he did this. And, and God designated it in the Old Testament, and Paul is saying it here, that was a product of the flesh, <clears throat> the fleshly desires of man took over and stepped ahead of God's plan. Now, we can all identify with that. that we do that in our lives. We step ahead, and uh, I, I am totally guilty. Ask my wife, because, because I always, if something comes up, my whole thing is, okay, I'm, I'm going to fix it. You know, I spent 47 years working with farmers. I never had a farmer call me on the phone and tell me, Grant, just want to let you know how great everything is going. You don't, you, you know, I don't need anything from you. No problems out here. Going great. No. The only time you get a phone call is when there's a problem and they want a solver. So I tend to do that and I get ahead of myself and I know I get ahead of God. 
But here, he's dealing with Sarah and Hagar, Ishmael and Isaac again, the flesh and the promise. Now he's going to narrow it one step further. Rebecca, Isaac's wife. Now, what was the deal with Rebecca? What was different there? Sarah, they had two children, Abraham and Sarah, if you will, one by handmaiden, one by, by, one by Sarah. What about Rebecca? She had what? She had twins. One man, one mother. DNA would have been the same, right? Eric? You're a resident expert. DNA would have been the same in the two as twins. Oh. Yeah, okay. Well, then we're going to call DNA is, is at least similar. But the whole issue there is, he's saying here now that um, when Bre- Rebecca conceived, the last part of verse 10, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And what does he say next? In order that God's purpose of what? Election. Election. Might continue, not start. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Who's the him? It's God. That's the topic. It's God. As God who calls. So here we are. We're faced with the, the, the thing that many times just causes us a lot of consternation, and maybe some even hate the issue. But it's election. In verse 11, the election is on display by God in the lives, going back through the, the, every one of these, through, uh, uh, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Ishmael, Isaac, the combination, through Sarah and Hagar, and now down to Isaac and Rebekah, and Rebekah being having twins, and they hadn't even been born. And God chose one over the other. God chose one over the other. And God's word to Israel never guaranteed salvation for every one of the Jews. Never. And to me, this whole issue on that verse right there on, on the election of God, that is, that's a perfect explanation of what he uh, had in 828 that we, wrote, or that we uh, read earlier. God's purpose. God's purpose was carried out in the history of mankind. And the biggest example of that probably is Isaac, or is uh, J- Jacob and Esau. His purpose was not going to be denied. Now, a couple of things here. I got this from Dr. Mu. Uh, Greek word for election here is called eklage. Eklage. And that Greek word for election comes from the root word of kaleo. Kaleo, which means to call or to call out. And what Paul is saying here is that God's, God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls, God who does the calling. And she was told, the older will serve the younger. That was God's call there. And that call means to summon, an effectual summons. God was doing the activity here. Not Rebecca, not Isaac. It was God. And it proved out. Because then he goes on further, and, and Paul uh, quotes Malachi 
chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 here, he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that is a, that is a hard verse, isn't it? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now, when Malachi wrote that, that was 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau. And what were the countries that, were, that descended from Jacob and Esau? Israel, we all know that one, we should. Edom, Edom, the Edomites. And there was always tension there, always tension there. And at one point uh, later on, you know, the Edomites denied Israel going through their land when they were going, going through the wilderness, wandering to go into the, the promised land. But at one time later on, the Edomites did become servants of the Israelites. But I think here, I think he, here he's very specific on who he's talking about, Jacob and Esau. And it's not, you know, I've heard, I've heard all kinds of messages on this. And one of those is that he's saying, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I loved less. And it's always been confusing to me over the years, not in recent years, but early years, because you hear all these different messages. But here, the word love means to choose. And the word hate means to reject, if you go back to in the languages again. So what he's saying here is, I have chosen Jacob, even to the point, as the younger, and that you never had that in, his, in, in, in Israeli practice, the elder was always the heir, the double heir, and the, the one that was chosen in the family. But here he said, no, Jacob, the second one out, I chose and Esau I have rejected. And he did it while they were in the womb. And th- that really um, sets us on edge a little bit, doesn't it? Does it, th- does it even today, for you that understand that, kind of make you a little squeamy? You know, he, he chose one and rejected the other even before they were born? But we have to understand. We tend, historically, when I hear people talk about election... I always hear them start out, well, I can't believe God is going to be that unfair. I can't believe that God is that unloving. We're starting from the wrong specter. The reality should be, after Adam and Eve sinned, all mankind was destined for what? Hell. They were to be rejected because of their sin. Now, they're born in Adam's sin, and we're going to close out with this, so just be patient with me. They're born in Adam's sin, but they sinned, and because of their sin, they're rejected by God. And we kind of take it, we, we, we forget that sometime, we call God unfair. The reality is, this is a doctrine for saved people. I said this two weeks ago. This is not something, if you're out talking to somebody that's unsaved, and uh, they bring up something about God's fairness, and you start talking about election. <laughs> that's not a good topic. That's not where they are. Where they are is God has drawn them to you, so you want to concentrate on the gospel, the good news that God is offering you. That's what you want to concentrate on. But we can understand, and we should approach this from our position as saved people. God chose us, not because we offered something to him that was so great that he couldn't resist us. Simply, God chose us. He chose to love us and to call him unto himself. 
That should be the emphasis that we approach election from, and not the negative side. Because if you're here today and you're not saved, God has placed you in this place today to receive the gospel. He's, he is working in your heart. He's trying to draw you to himself. So we should be, we should be thankful for that. And, when, you know, and I've been around unsaved people my, all my life and working and stuff, and you invite them to a meeting. or uh, I can remember a couple of them that came to a service here, and you know, they made it play, oh, that's the last time I'll come there. You know, I'm not going to listen to that. And, uh, and you have all these type of things that take place, but the reality, just like Wednesday night at our concert, there are people here from town, <clears throat> some that come regularly to special concerts, but there are people here from town that heard the gospel. God placed them there. Now, are they going to get saved? I don't know. But God did place them there for a purpose. And we didn't have a service that day where Jeremy got up and started preaching on election. <laughs> no, he got up and talked about the good news. So we have an issue here with Paul that he's trying to make clear to these people. God is sovereign over all things. Now we go on to verses 14 through 23. Sovereignty raises questions. And we see a lot of questions here that Paul asks. <clears throat> I don't know if these are questions that have been brought to him previously as people traveled back and forth to Rome, or if he's anticipating because of, let's face it, he's been on the road now and doing evangelism, if you will, for quite a few years. He's maybe anticipating the typical questions that they'll ask. What should we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses. So now he's going back to Moses. Now if you're a Jew sitting there in this church, now he went back to, as a Jew, that was kind of your favorite point. More so than Abraham was Moses and the law. He said to Moses, and this is, uh, this is in um, Exodus. Exodus, I believe it's 33. Uh, what shall I say then? If, uh, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, but exertion or exertion, but it depends on God who has mercy. So he's depicting God here as a merciful God, and Moses is depicting God as a merciful God in the fact that he will have compassion on some, and that he will, he will uh, uh, have mercy on some, but not all. And that was to Israel. So we see here again the, the fact of God's, uh, God's mercy and God's compassion on mankind, even though they were sinners. Now the site that, that, that Paul re, uh, is uh, speaking from here, quoted from, is Exodus thirty-three nineteen, and it clearly indicates that God is absolutely sovereign, and he is the one who elects, because that, this, this passage here is following in the right after the issue of election that he's declared God is the one who elects and gave Jacob and Esau as examples. And when we get to the issue of human will, which we'll touch on later, salvation is not initiated by human choice. Even faith is a gift from God. So when we say, well, we have human will involved here and we can choose, we can only choose as God grants faith. 
because God is the author of faith. So it's all in the hands of God. And then he goes on, he gives the example of Pharaoh. And uh, another one that has had a lot of controversy. For this very purpose, he said to Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he gave the two reasons to Pharaoh of why he raised him up. Now Pharaoh views that and says, I became the mighty leader of Egypt. No, God raised him up. And he raised him up for two purposes. To show his power. And remember, he, he, he brought Israel out with a high hand. When they, when they finally told the Israelites to leave, what did they tell them? Take all this stuff with you. They gave them livestock. They gave them their jewels. They gave them food. They just, they just, they gave them everything about that there was in Egypt to get out of there. That's God's power. That's God's power. And his name was proclaimed through all the earth. Remember, even when they came into the promised land, Jericho, what was said? Oh, we, we heard about, we heard about Egypt. We heard about the Red Sea. We heard what God did there, what your God did there. And that was uh, some 40 years later when they finally crossed over. And they were still talking about it. So it was well known in the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, verse 18. And um, he hardens whomever he wills. We're going to address that in a few minutes here. But I want to get through this, uh, this first part here of, of uh, Romans uh, uh, 9 and these verses. I want, to, I want to run back to a verse that we talked about in length. In chapter 1, verse 17. And remember here that Paul proclaims that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, first to last, I believe. But he talks about the righteousness of God. And this is what we're seeing here, I think, with uh, the issue of Pharaoh. God's righteousness and, we, and I think Doug Bookman, the, the more I study into Romans, I, I believe Doug Bookman is right. He's talking there about the righteous character of God. Now, if God is the one who hardens, um, how would he say that? I raised you up that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I harden whom I'm, I, who I will or who I want to harden. God is the one who's making that determination, then there has got to be an absolute measure uh, somewhere that we are a standard of measure, if you will, that we can see in that. Because he's judging right from, in the issue of right from wrong. Is he right to, to bless them and have mercy? Is he right to also harden them? Is that God's right? Well, I think that stems from chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God, God's righteous character, was revealed how? In Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying there in verse 17. It's revealed in Jesus Christ. It's in that person of Jesus Christ. And all of God's glory is evident in that very fact that he brought Jesus Christ as a product of his righteous character. He chose in Jesus Christ, to allow some to be saved. And they practiced that all through the Old Testament. But he also has the right to harden who he wants to harden. Is that really where that's at? We'll, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But don't ever forget that. God's righteous character is on display here. 
And all that he is, all that Paul is presenting, and it goes back to that key verse in verse 17 of chapter 1. And like I said, I believe Doug is right on there. And his righteous character is on display through Jesus Christ and it's on display through everything he does. And in verses 25 and 26, he has a proof text of what he's talking about in 22 and 23. He says, what if God, in verse 22, 22 uh, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Okay, that's one thing. Then he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. That again is election, beforehand. So we see the glory of God is there. And he said, even us, whom he has called, Kaleo, whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And he goes to Hosea here as a proof text. Now, these verses in Hosea, and I taught through Hosea not too long ago, so a lot of you maybe remember some of this. But those proof texts in, in Hosea, when he, he's talking there, he says, uh, those who are not my people, lo, am I, remember that, lo, am I, not my people, I will call my people, am I. And her who is not beloved, lo, Rahama, I will call beloved, Ruhema. So, and there he's talking about reinstating at some point, because Hosea is, 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 uh, is prophesying to the northern ten tribes are going to be dispersed. They're not, gonna, not, not like the southern tribe taken into captivity whole, but they're going to be dispersed. But God is going to call them back together, is what he's talking about there. Well, here now Paul uses this to the church at Rome. And he's saying uh, in verse uh, 28, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And I believe Paul's application here is exactly what he said uh, in verse 24, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. He's he's, He's calling the Gentiles here, not my people, and now you are my people. He's offered his salvation to the Gentiles as well as Jews. So Paul's taking an Old Testament scripture here that was for Israel, but now he's making an application to both Israel and, and uh, the Gentiles in the church. This stuff should really excite us. It should really excite us when we understand that God and his mercy and grace, remember we talked about grace in the last second half of chapter 5, and I said it's that huge umbrella that extends way beyond what we even think. This is part of it. This grace is extended not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile. And we see here the whole issue of election. So what do we make of it? I'm going to give you three things here that we just went through, but in a, short, in a shorter version. One, verse 13, he said, Jacob I loved or chose, but Esau I hated or rejected. Secondly, in verse 18, he says, God has mercy on whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. Pharaoh was the example of that. But he has mercy on whom he wants, and he hardens whom he wants. The third one was, in verses 22 and 23, he has objects of mercy whom he prepared for his glory, and he had objects of of his wrath, 
whom he prepared for his wrath. What does that tell us? What does that tell us in simple, simple terms? God is what? God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And we need to approach the election of God from our standpoint as born-again Christians to understand what God extended to us. All these epistles are written to whom? Believers and the church. They're written to believers in the churches. That's who they're written to. I don't see any epistles that, that say, okay, I'm writing this to the unsaved people of the world. Please read it. I don't see that. They're written to Christians. We have to take these doctrines that are difficult and take them from the standpoint of God's sovereignty and that we are a part of that because he called us into his family. We're part of a remnant of all society that God is chosen. God is sovereign over all things. And um, then the last question I want to ask is this. So, now we went through chapter 9, and so far we haven't seen the word faith. Now that'll change next week in verse 30, which I think verse 30 kind of fits with chapter 10. So we're going to see a different take next week that might be more comfortable to us. But we didn't see the word faith here. But Paul teaches in Romans 5, the last part of Romans 5, that all are involved in Adam's sin. Do you remember that? And we're under the sentence of what? Death. We're under the sentence of death. And Paul writes that in chapter 5. So we're all a part of Adam's sin. We're all sentenced to death. So here's the question. God's hardening. Does God harden? Does his hardening, does it cause spiritual insensitivity? Or does it maintain people in a state of sin that they have already chosen? Now, we talked about different things on, uh, uh, you know, original sin, if you will, Adam's sin. And does God's grace cover it, Adam's, Adam's sin? I believe it does, at least in the cases of, you take babies or young children that die, I believe they're covered under the grace of God and that they are safe. They never got to the point where they could ask to be saved, if you will, but they're safe in God's plan and in his hands. Uh, we see the, the heaven's going to be heavily populated with aborted babies uh, from around the world, but especially from the United States here. And, and God, I believe, his grace extends to that. But once we're born and we start to live, what do we do? We sin. We sin. It's a nature that's innate in us from the bowels of Adam, our father, if you will, of mankind. So we sin. So the question then that's out there, and I don't know that I have the answer on this, is when God hardens people, is he, is he bringing on the hardening himself? Or is he operating off of the fact that they are willful sinners who are, at that point in their life have rejected God, so he's just maintaining a state that they're already in as he hardens them. Which is it? Mike?
No. No. I don't believe we do. But the question is there. And the question does get asked. So where is it? Well, as Mike said, either way, in the end, it doesn't make any difference. But we do know that there's an innate willfulness on people to sin from birth on. Even when they don't understand it, when the baby's fussing and crying, everything's been done for them, they're still fussing and crying. And you get little kids that get real sassy and bratty. Well, you didn't teach them that. So we know the will is there to sin. And whether Pharaoh was hardened because he already had the sin nature and God is just maintaining what's already instilled in him, or whether God chose to harden him in the end doesn't make any difference. But the, the question is there, Mike. And then he hardened himself. Right. Right. So both elements are there. And we know that because of our sinful nature, we can harden our hearts against God. So it's there. And we understand that nature is in every single person. So in the end here, and we'll cover some of the things that we'll see in free will next week, but in the end here, God's salvation was pure grace, undeserved blessing that he bestowed upon us. And by the same token, God's wrath is a faith that they had already chosen. So because of the sin nature they are born with, they chose to sin. And as God revealed himself, whether it was in creation or whatever, they continued to choose to sin. Jeremy Fraser, I'm so glad to hear him say that, you know, that in, in a country, some countries where somebody believes that there's a God out there, he believes God is powerful enough to send somebody to him to share the gospel. And I've given the example many times of Norris Bailey in Burma, up in the mountains where that happened. He got there and this old man came out to meet him and said, and they told him why they're there, and he said, I've been waiting for this. I knew there had to be whatever he called it, I don't know. A supreme being or whatever. He knew that, and they shared the gospel with him, and he got saved, and that was the beginning of that village. So God, God is, if he's powerful, like we believe he is, he will send somebody if uh, somebody has that issue. But we can't forget that the innate nature of sin is still in mankind. And they harden themselves as well as God might harden them. And, uh, and that's where we're at as we deal with the public. Next week, um, we will be in chapter 10. We'll start with verse 30 of chapter 9 and then go all the way through chapter 10. Thank you.